This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Breaking Banks Europe. I'm Francesca Liberti, and this is episode 114, where we have our popular format, News from the Fintech Front. As some of you already know, in this format, we select some of the latest and uh, most interesting fintech news we have bumped across, and we discuss them, in this case, with two of the most reliable fintech experts out there. So, of course, being the beginning of the year, we will take also the chance to make some more general consideration about the whole 2022 and perhaps some uh, predictions as well. So today, as I was mentioning, I'm glad to be here with two exceptional guests. First of all, let me introduce you Gustavo Vinacqua, who just left BBVA after 11 years of good service, where he worked uh, mainly in open innovation and the innovation centers, uh, building up uh, fintech programs and uh, new digital businesses, as well as uh, early stage investment and venture building activities and now very much involved within the sustainability and circular economy space, which we'll, we'll have the, the chance to hear more uh, during the conversation. So, Gustavo, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And, of course, Chris Gladil, worldwide recognized as one of the top authority and influencer in the fintech ecosystem. He was the head of Lloyd's Banking Group Innovation Labs and after that co-founder and CEO of the Challenger Bank, Seco. And of course, very well known for his tweets and blog posts. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a, a familiar name for everybody in the fintech world. Chris, a pleasure to have you here. Thanks very much. It's a, it's a pleasure. I should correct that I wasn't head of the Innovation Labs at Lloyd's. I just um, started the Disruptive Innovation Labs at Lloyd's. And also Seco was a, wasn't a challenger bank in that it didn't have a banking license, but it, I guess it was close to a, 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 um, a kind of digital bank, I suppose, but it wasn't a proper bank. All right. Good to, good to mention that. I'm sorry if the information I got was, uh, was wrong, but um, you did well in, uh, in, in correct me, of course. So I'm sure these uh, are very quick bios and uh, they are not uh, enough to cover all of your experience, but I'm sure we can get uh, a little bit more um, into your backgrounds also during the, uh, the discussion. So as I was mentioning before in this format, we, uh, we, we try to cover uh, some of the news that got our attention. And let's let's start with the first one I've selected for you, and it's it, it's it, it was really one of the um, main news of the last month, and it was about the um, great funding rounds uh, that some uh, digital banks uh, uh, got lately, 
And of course, uh, how can I not mention Quanto that has raised 486 million in a Series D funding round, now providing the company with a 4.4 billion valuation. And of course, we have quite some others, Brex, uh, Revolut, N26 uh, in, the, in the last months of uh, 2021. So, it seems that investors are trading profitability for growth. Uh, they are still not profitable, but highly valued for their potential growth. So my question to you, I'm very interested in understanding uh, your opinion around, uh, around this, and especially if you think this is sustainable in the long run, and, and which are the challenges that these startups are facing. Chris, do you want to start perhaps? Yeah, sure. So obviously, like when you've been in fintech for quite a while, you'll see every month there's a, a new announcement of a new bank that's got a, an, an astronomical um, amount of funding. Uh, it's interesting to kind of take a step back and look at the overarching trends of what's happening here. Um, because what we're seeing is that there is funding going into the old school new digital banks, so the number 26 and the Revolutes, those kind of ones who've been around for a while. Yes, they're getting another funding round to kind of boost what they're doing. Um, but the newer ones we're seeing are more to do with um, specific purpose digital banks. So ones that focus on, say, digital nomads or ones that focus on a particular segment of society or ones that have a particular angle like an ESG or an environmental kind of social responsibility angle. Um, what we're not seeing that much at the moment is kind of generic new digital banks. And I think one of the challenges here is that the incumbent banks aren't that far behind the new digital ones now. When the new digital banks kind of broke onto the scene, maybe sort of eight or nine years ago, they were they were streets ahead of the incumbent banks. Now the incumbent banks are maybe eighteen months behind the digital banks in terms of features and uh, and how they operate. So I think that the new digital banks to to get these astronomical funding rounds, they do need to uh, find a USP and really go focus on that and uh, and show proper. Um, differentiation in that space yeah definitely i mean uh, uh what you're saying uh, it's uh, it actually makes a lot of sense i mean uh, we see a lot of them focusing on a really specific need um gustavo what's your view on that yeah just to add a sort of a different angle uh here I, it's around only five percent of the challengers banks that are profitable this these days and uh, and the most of them are coming from Asia. So that's the, those big ones like uh, WeBank uh, from WeChat, uh, Paytm in India, Rakuten, and uh, and the the common theme here is that all of these come from business models with a high frequency of interaction. So it's uh, lots of interaction with the uh, customers, sort of the type of e-commerce, uh, the super apps uh, type of uh, concept as well. And um, I, I guess. Part of the reason uh, why they are profitable is exactly that. They're, in a way, extending and broadening their value prop in a way that they can uh, have uh, more chances to make uh, business with uh, with their uh, customers. Of course, the, the, some of the, the ones coming from Asia have a different scale, uh, huge uh, scale. But then there's uh, a few other cases. Uh, uh, maybe the Starling Bank in, in, uh, is is one uh, interesting sort of an outlier, if I may. So they, they they've been focusing on building a profitable business, uh, uh, I guess, from the beginning. Some yeah. there's some interesting elements there in the value prop, um, the the banking as a service part, which is uh, 
I guess, giving them sort of a head start also to embrace embedded finance and the marketplace model uh, that is also supporting um, sort of a, a business model with with high interactions as well, right, with, with customers. So they're broadening their offering and giving users more more chances to end up doing stuff with the, with them. So, um, yeah, I guess that's also a way to to analyze uh, this uh, this interesting space, which is uh, new digital banks. And do you still see a space for all of them to to grow uh, according to their uh, huge funding rounds, or uh, it's going to be a moment where the market will uh, crunch a little bit? You think? Well, I guess that it depends. Different markets uh, have a, are a sort of a, a different levels of being crowded, as you as you described. Yeah. And um, and and still, some specific uh, markets are are also uh, seeing as uh, as uh, Chris uh, highlighted uh, mm-hmm. very uh, specific value props for specific segments or themes uh, that uh, ensures, in a way, some uh, differentiation. So um, we we gotta check and and see uh, how much they are able to move uh, into a different part of the cycle, and um, and I guess we we may may also touch this point uh, later in the conversation. But on on inflationary environment or or scenarios, uh, the, the the other things that that could be taken into account to understand the potential future of uh, of these uh, challenger banks. Yes, let's uh, let's actually deep dive uh, um, a little bit more in what you you have just mentioned about the inflation um, uh, moment we are actually living. So, um, inflation indeed is rising quite a lot. The, it reached the, the highest point in many countries uh, in, in uh, more than forty years. Um, and this, of course, uh, um, it, it's definitely a problem for the, the pockets of the consumers, but creates also very good opportunities for fintech companies uh, as people will probably need uh, to, to make investments if they don't want to lose, uh, to lose money. How do you see um, these two elements? So the rise of fintech companies in this kind of uh, macro scenario. Please. Um, so yes, obviously inflation is going up, and there's various economic factors globally that are causing that, and uh, micro factors at country level. I, f- I don't see this as being a direct correlation to any particular driver in the fintech space um, right now. To be honest, I think there's uh, yes, inflation is going to create unstable economic um, positions. And there's going to be people who are going to therefore utilize that to increase their investments or move money around the place. So they might open up kind of new needs for fintechs in certain areas, but I don't see it having a massive impact on um, on fintech in general. And uh, um, Gustavo, maybe a little bit more in this sense uh, about your your new interest. So, what's your view on uh, on on the macro scenario? But considering maybe also a little bit more uh, sustainability angle of that. Yeah, I have to admit that I'm Argentinian, so I do have a, a unfortunately a background on. on yeah, the, I can. So, um, uh, yeah. On, in this case, I think that circular economy models, um, the ones that favor uh, rent, reuse, repair, 
uh, are also sort of a good feed for inflationary environment. So it's not only about um, taking care of your money and invest it in a way that uh, you protect from uh, losing purchasing power, of course. It is also about making the best use of what you have. And, um, and this required specific financial features and capabilities. Think of uh, insurance and or warranties for uh, things that you buy uh, or repair or uh, from secondhand uh, underwriting for uh, renting uh, uh, type of things in different verticals that are no, not very common these days. Uh, for example, fashion, uh, of course, insurance, uh, of course, in, in those cases. So any alternative lending solution that would embed a sustainable angle would also require a um, corresponding risk assessment or underwriting piece, right? So um, I would say that there's a big opportunity in helping customers um, put their money, their, their money to work, of course, to avoid that losing, uh, avoid losing purchasing power and this uh, inflationary uh, scenarios. And also there are going to be a healthy amount of opportunities in building solutions that help uh, customers handle their money in a way that is uh, sustainable under increasing uh, prices, right? Um, uh, for example, as said, uh, renting uh, versus owning things, um, taking advantage of uh, idle assets and uh, and getting some uh, benefits from, um, from that or just extending the use of things by repairing them. So these uh, open up opportunities for, again, micro insurance, uh, uh, for new data services to facilitate underwriting, for new alternative scores to support these activities, uh, for the, the registry and track of these uh, uh, assets. So there's a whole things to be built uh, in this in this space. And um, well, there's there's so many other things in in addition to to this. I would say that also the the voluntary carbon markets are an interesting space to explore. Um, part of the system around carbon credits and carbon markets need adapting. Yeah. The registry and, and lots of the stuff in terms of uh, homogenizing the description and the taxonomy, the type of credits and so on. Um, and there may be ways to further use of, the, of this mechanism uh, linked to the use of new products and services. So that's also something that is uh, really interesting in, in these uh, specific scenarios. Yeah, and it's definitely a topic that we have seen quite a lot lately, um, especially the whole uh, ESG and sustainable investment uh, um, uh, area is definitely something that we see ramping up uh, uh, also from some uh, some big funds um, out there. Um, but shifting a little bit more back into the um, banking area, uh, another trend topic that we have uh, seen circulate quite a lot lately uh, is the buy now, pay later one, which has uh, completely redefined the relationship consumers have with credit uh, and they they make their financial decision basically at the checkout when they buy a, a new product. So I've read a lot of uh, um, different views about how this could be um, actually a little bit negative from the, um, the point of view of the consumer because it doesn't really educate the consumer uh, to make a proper use of their money. Uh, but on the other side, it's a fact that uh, um, it's, it's a new 
reshape of the um, of the way credit is handled. So I imagine traditional credit services they have to change uh, their perspective, and as a reflection, also uh, banks should adapt. Uh, how do you see this phenomenon going, Chris? Yeah, so, yeah, that was a pretty good summary by now, pay later. I guess it's important to look at the other options that were available. So, obviously, payday lenders were around for a while and they got quite a negative reputation. Um, there's credit card uh, lending and there was overdraft facilities. Those were the kind of um, credit facilities available to the kind of customers that buy now, pay later are now um, pitching towards. Uh, I guess buy now, pay later hasn't been around for all that long. So we haven't really had that later period uh, happening just yet. Um, but when it does, I expect we'll see a lot of um, issues regarding um, uh, poor credit and uh, repayment problems and all sorts of things like that. Um, the same with the credit reference checking is not as robust, I guess, uh, as you would say, with, say, credit card facilities. They don't have uh, necessarily organized credit reference agencies. It's based more on um, particular um upfront kind of uh, declarations when you're taken on buy now pay later i think what we're going to see with buy now pay later is uh, first of all regulators are going to be taking an increasing look at this and they already are to some extent and starting to um make sure that um the what's classed as um embedded finance uh when you take out these loans could actually be looked at disguised finance and uh, some of the terms conditions and other things might not be as well defined when you take on these products. So I think the regulators will be wanting to make sure that customers know exactly what they're doing when they are uh, picking up a buy now, pay later product. Also, I think there'll be a load of um, services will come in and start looking at aggregating buy now, pay later. So if you've got several of these loans going on, you find that actually it's, uh, it's pretty inefficient and it might be better to aggregate these all under a product. And I think what we'll see ultimately in the longer term is a complete circling back towards credit card-based products um, because people start thinking, well, we need a credit facility to work across banner pay later agencies. We need an overarching aggregated um, account to handle all these buy now, pay later. And then we could throw in some additional kind of um, um, benefits and loyalty and other things like that all worked in. So essentially, buy now, pay later will evolve back into what we basically call credit cards today. Um, but for that to happen, there's going to be quite a bumpy road as we sort of um, scramble our way through um, the, I guess, the ethics of how buy now, pay later has been pushed onto consumers and what that means in the short term with the repayments, particularly like we're talking about with inflation and other socioeconomic factors now. I think a lot of people may have well overstretched themselves with buy now, pay later, as you saw with the payday lenders previously in the past couple of years. Um, and when that all comes to fruitation, it's not going to be particularly pleasant in the short term. But yeah, longer term, I see these things just ending up basically as credit card facilities again. Thanks, Chris. Uh, yeah, indeed, you touch upon quite a, uh, an interesting uh, side that I was mentioning also before, like the ethics of uh, all the pay, pay na, pay na, buy now, pay later um, phenomenon, of course, the consumer needs to know what they are doing exactly and uh, their, their chances to, to, to repay as well. Um, Gustavo, what do you think about this phenomenon? Sure. No, it's uh, definitely an interesting uh, angle. I would say that there's a clear signal from uh, consumers um, showing that uh, the way this has been presented uh, is the way they, they, they like it. 
and uh, from uh, same from consumers and merchants uh, uh, as well, right? So in a way, and uh, following uh, Chris's uh, analogy, it is something that happened in the past with lending um, as a whole. Um, so we are seeing uh, the signal coming uh, from uh, the market showing the way to other um, financial institutions and incumbents so that uh, they can provide uh, this uh, experience in a, in a way that is, uh, of course, uh, solid in the, in the back following the previous uh, comment, right, which is the, the underwriting um, piece, uh, basically. So um, I think banks are already uh, taking note and moving into uh, into the experience because they do understand, of course, the the um, the essence of uh, of, uh, of the lending and, and, the, and the credit in the in the in the point of sale in this case, but the underwriting uh, that is uh, underlying, right? So um, there's space there's space to do same. And you can see some uh, uh, players pitching buy now, pay later for uh, for B two B, which in the end may may just be uh, embedding uh, the, the previous products we had, factoring and everything in, into into a way, in a way that is uh, easier uh, in terms of uh, of the of the players there, the consumers, uh, the the businesses in this case to to use right. So um, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I would say that there's there's a chance that buy now pay later. Uh, some of the players, at least the ones that are um, yeah, having a solid underwriting uh, underneath, end up um, uh, succeeding in a way in a way that is uh, sustaining this this type of uh, value prop and maybe moving into other parts of the of the value chain. Uh, of course, bias as I am, I would say that there's also an opportunity to embed um, specific data that has to do with the sustainability uh, in inside that uh, decision point, which is uh, at the moment in which uh, consumers or businesses are buying something from someone else, right? Which is, um, in a way, uh, the, the possibility to start embedding uh, sustainability uh, in in in, consum in consumption and uh, and uh, accelerating the path towards a more uh, a more uh, positive uh, way of uh, of behaving in terms of consumption, right? Yeah, indeed. Hopefully, let's see how how it's it's, it's going to move uh, towards that. Hopefully, um, okay, guys. So let's go for a very short break, and we will come back in a few seconds. The FTS Group builds innovation ecosystems. We engage incumbents, investors, entrepreneurs, technology partners, and regulators to build trusted and connected fintech tribes around the world. We firmly believe that innovation in financial services will truly improve people's lives. Learn more on ftsgroup.eu. And here we are again at Breaking Banks. We are uh, news from the fintech front with Chris and Gustavo. So um, in the first part of the show, we have just uh, mentioned quite some uh, nice news. And we were talking uh, right before the, the, the break about the buy now, pay later phenomenon. And Chris was mentioning something very interesting about the um, future of that 
leaning more towards the uh, credit card scheme that we uh, we all know. Um, and about this, I was thinking to link this two side of the show with uh, um, another news about a huge credit card company, which is Visa. But I could even mention Mastercard because they are kind of doing uh, um, some similar uh, patterns. So uh, I'm talking about their acquisition strategy. Uh, We have seen, especially Visa lately, it's really like December news, uh, um, buying uh, Currents Cloud, acquiring Currents Cloud, but before uh, uh, we can mention Plaid, Think, and so on. And they have ramped up their effort to make the shift from the old and boring guys, allow me to say, to the cool ones. So how this uh, um, uh, strategy is is coming from, I mean, um, is the destiny of the fintechs to just be gobbled up by incumbents or how do you see that? Chris, what's your opinion on that? So I guess... Visa and MasterCard have a bit of a challenge because they've kind of been top dogs for quite a long time in the financial services space. But now I guess we're seeing um, that their kind of days of charging high card transaction fees for purchases is kind of coming to an end, particularly with open banking and uh, account-to-account payments and a lot of other sort of um, direct um, services. You're seeing that Visa and MasterCard are kind of being almost brandished as the, the kind of unnecessary middlemen now in this whole setup. So yes, they've got to do something pretty drastic. Otherwise, yeah. they're facing an ex- existential threat in the next sort of five to ten years' time if that carries on. So, and that was kind of you could see that with the kind of tussle between Visa and uh, Amazon recently. Um, so, I guess Visa and Mastercard um, are looking how they're gonna how they're gonna pivot or evolve the way out of this. And that's where I guess you will be seeing their purchases. These kind of I guess, uh, back-end infrastructure companies, the ones running the open banking rails, the ones doing the account-to-account payments, the ones who have the e-commerce um, setups going on there. So I think what Visa MasterCard will be looking at is how they can get a sizable chunk of that space so they don't get totally disintermediated. So they become, I, I guess, essentially they're buying their own disruptors. And it makes a lot of sense since they've got uh, quite a large war chest to uh, to be purchasing with. So yes, I expect we'll see more acquisitions of this of this kind of like but essentially they are buying their own future yeah indeed to, to, to save their their future they need to make this sort of um, acquisition strategy and gustavo what do you think about that uh, do you think they are non-stopping as uh, chris is mentioning sure i think they are what a big part of what they have done is on data so um I would I would love to see them doing more uh, similar to the play and think thing, and uh, the, uh, I would I would love to see them doing more uh, on the ESG sustainable sustainability space. So data is still an essential element that needs uh, development, and there's a growing convergence towards the need to, uh, for action, right, to address the challenges we face. So consumers are showing real interest in adapting their behavior to one that is more aligned with circularity and and one that would contribute to a more sustainable economy and planet, to a net positive economy, we say at the Net Positive Labs. And the governments and policies also showing signs in the same direction. So finance is already mobilizing funds 
taking into account sustainable practice. So that uh, the, the data to identify and track activity uh, that may be contributing to a, a, in, a, in a positive way to decarbonizing a role is, uh, is partially missing, right? Still missing there. So there's yeah. a huge opportunity to build also that infrastructure following uh, the, 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 the previous comment, the, their buying infrastructure and pieces of the, of the next uh, value prop and, uh, and developing or buying that piece of in infrastructure would uh, help them continue their, their platform uh, uh, business model. So I, I would love to see them doing more on that uh, ESG sustainability space in data. Yeah, and, and double clicking a little bit more in this uh, um, sustainability uh, trend you were mentioning, um, do you think that uh, the consumers are actually in a moment to drive this whole wave? I mean, uh, do you see consumers enough aware of what's going on and uh, Therefore, banks, banks, or whatever other financial institution moving toward that direction because of the consumers. Because I have the feeling that we need a little bit more of education around that. Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, there's clearly a convergence path. So let me put an example for example from my previous uh, gig. I would call it uh, at BBVA. So BBVA is already. Uh, measuring carbon footprint for retail customers and for business customers out of the transactional data. And uh, that's the first step. I mean, it's awareness, as you said. It's um, yeah. uh, knowing uh, how much harm are you doing to, to yourself and the rest around you. So um, we, uh, our, our mission at uh, Net Positive Labs is to accelerate uh, the transformation towards uh, this uh, new uh, economy that is um, a net positive economy and takes into account uh, this uh, concept of a, of a circular economy and all the latest development in sustainability. And the only way to accelerate is uh, start with the with the giving uh, the, the the players the the awareness. And after that, they gotta have something to they have, gotta have a call to action. They gotta be able to take action. So there's so many other ways to embed that in the financial um, uh, products so in terms of when you buy something and you understand how much that thing that you're buying it's uh, contributing in a positive uh, way or or not uh, when you decide to buy more or less or you decide to go for a model that is uh, renting or is extending the use of, of that thing when you're repairing something so yeah. again this uh, i think there's a huge opportunity in that in that space Thanks, Gustavo. And uh, since our time is uh, actually running up quite fast, uh, um, I have a very last uh, uh, news to, to discuss with you. And of course, uh, <laughs> allow me to um, put in the conversation uh, just a very, just very quickly the the crypto world. Uh, just because of the latest crash we, we have seen uh, a few days ago. Um, so I have to, to mention that because I also have some good friends and one is Matteo Rizzi, the executive producer of the show that uh, messaged me very worried about <laughs> his savings, let's say. Um, so we have seen indeed uh, a, a big drop 
in the in the past week. Bitcoin, if I'm not wrong, 70%. Uh, Ethereum, almost 27%. Uh, Binance, uh, almost 30%, and so on. Um, we have seen also how central banks are looking uh, into the space and uh, uh, some uh, uh, commenters said that this could also have been a consequence of uh, actually the central banks looking into that. So very briefly, I'm uh, in, interested in your opinion uh, about that and uh, maybe also if, if you do have uh, any uh, suggestions as well, or uh, I, I believe it's also a matter again in this field of uh, education of uh, uh, of people that are investing in this kind of things. So, what's your idea around this whole phenomenon? Okay, I'll go on that one. I guess it has it's a humongous question, uh, but I guess yeah. Yeah, to, to try and answer succinctly. So, yes, I do think there was a link between uh, central banks taking on the idea of digital currencies and. A um, the traditional um, crypto world going out of flavors. We saw that in China where they uh, ramping up their C CBDC and starting to outlaw mining and other sort of um, independent cryptocurrencies. We're seeing that in India with talk of uh, new regulation coming out, out, outlawing various cryptocurrencies. And I expect we'll see that in the US and Europe as well, where um, once they finally figure out what they want to do with central bank digital currencies, they'll be wanting to um, start to make that the flavor of the month. And I think what you'll start to see is a lot more um, material going out about um, the negative aspects of cryptocurrency, either from an investment point of view, but also there'll be a lot from the regulators about the negative angles in terms of money laundering, counterterrorism financing, fraud, and all sorts of other things associated with that. Uh, in terms of individual investors, I guess we've seen a massive amount of um, advertising and a lot of people pushing a lot of different types of coins, either through digital advertising or physical advertising, particularly like in London, across the tube networks, transport networks and billboards around. There was so much stuff over the past year. Um, and some of it's now been picked up by the advertising standards as, as potentially misleading. And I do feel for a lot of people who have put more money than they could afford into, um, into crypto and found that the um, recent crash has harmed them. But I guess that comes down to the original kind of advice that's always goes out there about investing what you can afford to lose. And I expect we'll start seeing, again, the regulators um, looking to maybe not necessarily put blockers on crypto investing, but definitely requiring that either um, people are only investing what they can afford um, or making mandatory a certain level of education uh, when people are putting money into crypto. Yeah, indeed. I mean, um probably we will see more and more the regulators putting their eyes on that uh, also to protect a little bit more um, the, the uh, individual investors that are um, putting quite some money into that. Um, Gustavo, the, the last word is, uh, is on you. Um, also definitely not the, the most sustainable topic <laughs> considering your, your interests, but I'm interested to, to know what's your opinion on, uh, on this. Yeah, still too early to say, I would say, on how much the interest from uh, central banks is going to end up in tangible adoption of the, uh, I would say, the decentralized essence uh, in blockchain and, uh, and, uh, and some of the crypto assets. Um, so having a stable coin or, or a token or something that mimics the current fiat is uh, one thing completely different 
from uh, threatening the financial intermediation uh, and um and uh, I would say that the, 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 the things I had, at least I have read about are more about uh, something that is being issued by an, an, an administered, administered by a central bank. And it's uh, more of a type of sustainable coin or, or token that is uh, that it has a real reserve uh, behind and so on. Um, so that is, uh, again, way uh, different from uh, from Bitcoin or any other um of the currencies we are we are commenting, and then of course the technology behind it uh, remains being um, completely amazing uh, uh, asset to be leveraged. Of course, there are still uh, limits to the technology in terms of the scaling, in terms of the how sustainable <laughs> it is not, and uh, yeah. lots of other angles. Um, but I have seen stable coins uh, backed with real reserve of grain in South America, which allows uh, the farmers to access uh, finance and, uh, and, uh, and, and grow. Um, and, and I have seen uh, some um, work done in, uh, in relation to, to carbon credits in that, in that uh, space as well, uh, using uh, the blockchain underneath. So there are amazing uh, use cases that can also uh, support uh, uh, looking for a more sustainable world uh, as well. As well, but it's early days. I, I think this is uh, being prudent and 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 keep exploring is the right uh, option. I would say. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, probably is actually uh, the time to um, um, put aside, uh, you know, the whole crypto things from uh, the blockchain technology. And I, I mean, you mentioned there are a lot of um, very good applications uh, uh, of the technology itself that probably it's actually a little bit more um, uh, fade by the, the whole crypto uh, chit-chatting. Um, but this is very uh, personal opinion. Of course. So, all right. So we have uh, um, we have uh, closed the, the time. Uh, we we run out of time in uh, in our disposal. So I would really like to thank you both for being with us. Thank you, Gustavo, and thank you, Chris. And uh, of course, for our worldwide audience, uh, um, just follow Breaking Banks Europe on all our streaming platform and social media. And uh, see you next week. Thank you, guys. And uh, thanks for our audience to tune in. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.